This means that if just one person who believed on Christ somehow lost their salvation, then Jesus is a failure because he would have failed to do the will of the Father. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan. And in this episode, we are going to be discussing a very important theological question, which is, can a Christian lose their salvation? Does the Bible teach once saved, always saved? Or must a Christian be careful throughout their life not to fall from grace and forfeit their salvation? I'm going to be upfront and tell you that the goal of this episode is to prove that the Bible teaches that Christians cannot lose their salvation. Yes, I believe that it is once saved, always saved, also known as the eternal security of the believer. Once you are a Christian, you can never lose your salvation. You never have to fear hellfire. Once somebody has truly accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing they can ever do would result in them losing their salvation. To demonstrate this, we're going to deal with three primary topics, which are 1. What salvation actually is, 2. Verses which support once saved, always saved, and 3. Verses that opponents of once saved, always saved use in attempt to support their position. Now, I want to make a quick point before diving into this topic. And the point I want to make is that whenever a theological question is debated, both sides will always appear to have verses which support their position. However, the important thing to know is that in all of these debates, one side has a majority of verses that are crystal clear on the subject, while the other side usually only has a small handful of ambiguous verses which they try and use to support their view. If someone takes verses out of context, then they could twist scripture to make it say pretty much anything they wanted. This is why systematic theology is so important. We cannot just take verses out of context and disregard what the rest of the Bible says about a topic, because we know that all scripture is inspired by God. In every theological debate I've looked into, the heretical position always appears to have a few verses to support it. But if you look into the subject as a whole, then you will see that the correct view is virtually always supported by the majority of verses and that these verses have very firm meanings. This is a basic principle of hermeneutics. You always go with what the majority and the clear verses teach for doctrine, rather than ignoring them and forming doctrine from a few ambiguous verses that may be hard to understand. A perfect example of this is the topic of water baptism for salvation. There are dozens of verses which support the doctrine that salvation is by faith alone without any works whatsoever. So clearly, one does not need to be baptized in water to be saved. However, there are a few verses that may appear to support the belief that water baptism is necessary for salvation especially if they are taken out of context. Therefore, the hermeneutically correct position would be to take the side of the dozens of clear verses which state that salvation is by faith alone, rather than the ambiguous verses which may appear to support baptism as being necessary for salvation. While verses used by those who promote baptism as being necessary for salvation 
have other valid interpretations that would fit with the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, the abundance and clarity of the verses which support salvation by faith alone are so strong that they are unable to be legitimately twisted to conform to the belief that water baptism, which is a work, is necessary for salvation. So before digging into this topic of once saved, always saved, I just wanted to make that clear because at the end of this podcast, we will be looking at verses used by opponents of once saved, always saved. So let's get right into it. Now, soteriology is the big fancy term, which means the study of salvation. And one of the most basic truths of soteriology is that the Christian concept of salvation consists of three primary parts, which are one, justification, which is the Christian's past tense separation from the penalty of sin. Two, sanctification, which is the Christian's present tense separation from the power of sin. And three, glorification, which is the Christian's future tense separation from the presence of sin. Concerning the three major parts of salvation, here's a quote from one of the most widely used seminary textbooks on systematic theology, which is titled Christian Theology and was authored by Miller J. Erickson. Erickson states the following, One is justified by being brought into a legal union with Christ. This, however, is merely the beginning of the spiritual life. The individual's spiritual condition is progressively altered. One actually becomes holier. This progressive, subjective change is referred to as sanctification, which means to make holy. Sanctification finally comes to completion in the life beyond death, when the spiritual nature of the believer will be perfected. This is termed glorification. And that can be found on page 840 of Christian Theology by Miller J. Erickson. Though sanctification and glorification are important aspects to grasp, when most people talk about salvation, they are referring specifically to justification, because that is the most essential aspect of salvation, seeing as it is what enables one to be forgiven for their sins by God and escape an eternity in hell. The process of justification is an instantaneous event which saves the Christian from the penalty of their sin and therefore allows God to declare them righteous. God does this by imputing the perfect, sinless record of Jesus Christ onto the Christian's behalf once they accept the gospel, which is the good news that even though every human being has fallen short of God's glory by their sin, and therefore everyone deserves an eternity in hell based on their actions, God loves humanity so much that he entered his creation as Jesus Christ so that if you acknowledge that you are a guilty sinner before God, believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, lived a perfect and sinless life, was crucified for your sins and rose from the dead three days later, and you accept Christ's atoning sacrifice for your sin by faith alone, then you will be saved. Now, once somebody accepts the gospel, God gives them eternal life, and they will spend forever in the kingdom of God, rather than having to suffer forever in hell for their sins. The process of justification is known as being born again and is labeled as such by Jesus Christ himself in John 3, 3, which states, Jesus answered and said unto Nicodemus, 
Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Bible uses very permanent and transformative language when it describes this rebirth. When someone is born again, there is a supernatural and creative process that takes place. 2 Corinthians 5.17 states that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. As recorded in John 5.24, Jesus states that he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Once someone is born again, they have passed from death unto life and no longer have to worry about being cast into hell because their sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. All of their sins have been forgiven. And God does this by imputing the righteousness of Christ onto Christians' behalf and saving them from the penalty of their sin. See Psalms 32 verse 3 and 103 verse 12, also Romans 4 verse 8. During this rebirth, Ephesians 1 13 to 14 states that Christians are also sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, actually seals Christians, which means he assures they maintain their relationship with God all the way to the final process of salvation, which is glorification. Now, after one becomes justified and sealed by the Holy Spirit, the next process of salvation is sanctification which is the separation from the power of sin and involves effort by the Christian. Sanctification takes place from the moment a Christian is born again until the moment they die, and the degree to which a Christian is sanctified depends on how well they obey God's will for their life. A great passage which concerns sanctification is 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 15 to 23, which state the following. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but always follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we can see from this passage, sanctification is an ongoing process and takes effort from the believer. While sanctification takes work by the believer, it is vital to note that this is a different process from justification, which is acquired by faith alone. The degree to which a born-again Christian is sanctified has no effect whatsoever on their justification. And while sanctification does not have to do with going to heaven or hell, the degree of one's sanctification does have eternal consequences. The Bible implies a varying degree of rewards in the kingdom of God, which believers will receive based on what they did after their rebirth. 
see Matthew 5.12, 6.20, etc. One of the most telling passages which describes these rewards is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15, which states that concerning Christians, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he has built upon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So as we can see, every Christian will be judged by God. However, the judgment God bestows upon a Christian is very different than the judgment he bestows upon an unsaved person. Notice that 1 Corinthians 3 verses 13 to 15 states that Christians will receive rewards and losses depending on their walk with God in this lifetime. And even though their work will be tried by fire, they themselves will be saved by fire. This is perhaps the clearest verse which shows that sanctification is a completely different process than justification. Justification occurs in an instant at the beginning of one's rebirth. Sanctification occurs throughout one's new life, and glorification occurs when Christians are resurrected in physical bodies and enter the kingdom of God. God makes sure those who are justified will be glorified by sealing them with the Holy Spirit, as noted earlier in Ephesians 1 verses 13 to 14. Later in Ephesians, specifically chapter 4 verse 30, it commands Christians to grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. The day of redemption, again, refers to when Christians, both dead and living, will be raptured up and receive their glorified bodies, which is described in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 50 to 57, which state the following. Now this I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which refers to physical death, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? So notice that Paul is saying here that Christians who have died will first be raised up and their souls will be united with these new, incorruptible, immortal bodies. See, when you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and become a Christian, yes, your soul, your spirit, they get redeemed, but your body does not. Christians' bodies still decay, get injured, get sick, get diseased, and die. So our bodies are still corruptible. But Paul is saying here that later, during this phase of glorification, every believer, dead or alive, will receive a glorified eternal body, 
and their souls will be united with this body. And that is the body that we will spend eternity in, in God's kingdom. And that is what glorification is. And that concludes the first part of this episode, which had the purpose of describing what salvation is. And just to recap, justification occurs by faith alone when one accepts the gospel of Jesus Christ and becomes born again. Sanctification occurs throughout the life of a Christian and includes effort by the believer, which will affect their rewards and losses in heaven. And glorification occurs when Christians receive their new glorified bodies for the eternal age, which is yet future. Now that we have discussed the three primary aspects of salvation, we can adequately examine what the Bible says about losing salvation. It is clear that when most people ask the question, if Christians can lose their salvation, they are referring specifically to justification, which as we know, is specifically salvation from eternal hellfire. We will now examine verses that show that a true born-again Christian cannot lose their salvation from hell once they have been justified before God. As stated earlier, this position is commonly known as once saved, always saved, or the eternal security of the believer. 1 John 5 verses 10 to 13 is a great passage to begin with when researching this subject, and it states the following. He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not God has made God a liar, because he has not believed the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. These things have I written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the Bible is very clear here that once you are born again, you may know that you have eternal life. If something is eternal, then it has no ending. So if someone goes around preaching that a believer can lose their salvation, then if we take this verse to mean what it says, that person has made God a liar because they believed not the record that God gave of his son. Because the record is that you may know you have eternal life. So if somebody's claiming that you can lose that life, it was never eternal to begin with. This is a very dangerous heresy because understanding that one's salvation from hell is eternal is inseparable from the gospel of Christ. The verses we looked at earlier which describe justification clearly imply that a permanent, transformative change takes place. Ultimately, if someone believes a Christian can lose their salvation, then they must believe that God is a failure. Not only is this demonstrated by the description of the Holy Spirit sealing believers until the day of redemption in Ephesians 4.30, but it is further confirmed by Jesus' declaration of what the Father's will is for him in John 6 verses 38 to 40. In this passage, Jesus states the following, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. 
And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. In verse 39, Jesus states that the Father's will for him is that all of which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Jesus is referring here to believers with the phrase, all of which he has given me. And he says that concerning everyone who believes on him, he will lose no one and will raise them all up on the last day, which is the day of redemption. This means that if just one person who believed on Christ somehow lost their salvation, then Jesus blew it. If just one Christian loses their justification before God, then Jesus is a failure because he would have failed to do the will of the Father. Though human beings fail to do the will of the Father all the time, Jesus Christ is the only human who always successfully fulfills the will of the Father. Jesus is not a failure and he will fulfill the will of the Father by not letting anyone who comes to him lose their eternal life. Again, if someone could lose eternal life, then it was never eternal to begin with, and therefore God would be a liar, according to 1 John 5, verses 10 to 13. And the Jesus I worship is not a failure. Jesus also explains in John 10, verses 27 to 30, that his followers' fate not only rests with him, but also rests directly with God the Father. The passage states the following, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. As we can see, once someone believes on Christ, then they enter into the hand of both Jesus and God the Father. Jesus explicitly says, that no one can pluck them out of his hand and that they shall never perish because he gives them eternal life. And again, notice how words such as never and eternal are used when discussing the justification of a Christian. These words convey a permanent change that can never be undone. This is yet further proof that once saved, always saved is essential to the gospel because Christ clearly states that his sheep will never perish. Matthew 24 verse 24 is further proof that God personally plays a role in every Christian's life and will never let them lose their salvation. In this verse, Jesus is talking about the last days and describes how there will be many false prophets who will deceive the world. He says, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. Notice that Jesus explicitly states, if it were possible, the false prophets would deceive the very elect, which are Christians. So, if born-again Christians could be deceived to the point of completely rejecting the truth of God, then Jesus would be in error here, because he is acknowledging that it is not possible for this to happen. 
This is because Jesus will fulfill the words he spoke in John 6, and he should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. If one has truly been born again, then they need not worry about losing their salvation, because the Holy Spirit will lead them into all truth, see John 16, 13, and God will protect them from deception, as proven here in Matthew 24, 24. Right here, Jesus is saying Christians can never reach the point of being deceived by these major false prophets that will lead them away from the one true and living God. Another verse on this topic is Romans 8.1, which states that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Since believing on Christ enables God to impute his righteousness onto a Christian's behalf and forgive their sins, they will never come into condemnation because their sins will not condemn them to hell now. This applies to past, present, and future sins. It's important to note that people who claim Christians can lose their eternal life are essentially saying that Christ's blood is insufficient because they seem to think that it only covers the sins one committed before they accepted the gospel. So this brings up a very important question. What about people who claim to have been Christian, but then end up rejecting God and his word? Though only God can truly know someone's heart, chances are that these, quote, ex-Christians, end quote, were never really reborn in the first place. And this can be seen in 1 John 2, verse 19 which states, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. This verse here demonstrates that these self-proclaimed ex-Christians may have put on a good show, went to church, prayed, and even tried to bring other people to Christ. However, these works mean nothing if they never personally accepted Jesus as their Savior. While these works may have justified them before men, as James 2 implies, they do not justify them before God because only true faith can do that. These are the people who Jesus refers to in Matthew 7 verses 21 to 23, which state the following. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. First, this passage makes it clear that works will not get anybody into God's kingdom. Even though the people getting damned did many wonderful works in Christ's name and may have publicly called him Lord, they were never truly born again. The fact that these people are even bringing up their works as a reason that God should let them into his kingdom shows that they were never saved to begin with because they never had any idea of how to truly be saved. Works have nothing to do with our justification before God. Second, it ties in perfectly with the topic of eternal security because it is amazing proof that Christians cannot lose their salvation. In verse 23, Jesus uses the words, 
I never knew you. If these people were ever truly saved, then Jesus is lying because he said that he never knew them. He didn't say, I used to know you, or I kind of knew you. He said, I never knew you. If anyone truly knows Christ, then they will know him forever. A common attack against once saved, always saved goes something like this. If a Christian cannot lose their salvation, then they could just go on living a wicked lifestyle and there won't be any consequences because God won't punish them for their wrongdoings. This attack is completely false and a proper understanding of God's relationship with his children illuminates the major problem with this claim. As we have discovered earlier, the process of sanctification involves effort by the believer and will reap eternal consequences. After someone is justified by faith alone, then they begin the separate process of sanctification, which is basically the degree to which one walks with God and obeys him throughout their life. To reiterate this point, recall that 1 Corinthians 3 verses 13 to 15 specifically states that every Christian's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abides which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. This is another watertight verse which proves that even though all Christians must give account to God for how they live life after being saved and will receive eternal rewards and losses based on their actions, they cannot lose their justification before God and therefore never have to fear being cast into eternal hellfire. Not only does God punish and reward Christians for their works in the afterlife, but he also dishes out reproof to his children in this life as well. This is made evident in Hebrews 12 verses 6 to 8, which state the following, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father does not chasten? But if you be without chastisement, then you are bastards and not sons. As we can see, once one becomes a child of God by being born again through Christ, then God will be especially present in their life. This is because God loves his children and wants the best for them. So if they are meddling around in wickedness that will ultimately corrupt their life and bring shame to his name, then he may interfere in their life however he sees fit. This may include emotional injury such as guilt, see Psalm 51, and physical injury such as sickness or even death, see Deuteronomy 28 verse 22, Acts 5 verses 1 to 11, and 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30. While God punishes Christians for their wrongdoings in this life and the next, he will never punish them by separating them from his love for eternity because this is only the fate for unbelievers. Romans 8 verses 35 to 39 states the following, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is explicitly saying here that nothing can separate a Christian from the love of God because his love for his children is unconditional. Once you become a child of God, you are eternally adopted into the body of Christ and never have to worry about being thrown into hell. Hypothetically, if a Christian could lose their salvation, what would be more loving for God to do? To let them go on and destroy their life and end up dying and going to hell for eternity? Or would it not be more loving for God to physically kill that Christian in this life so that their soul will spend eternity with him in heaven? Now, obviously, the latter option is much more loving. So with Romans 8, we see here that nothing can separate a Christian from the love of God. And when somebody is in hell, they are separated from the love of God. They are under the wrath of God. So no Christian will ever go to hell. And again, even if they hypothetically could reach a point of going to hell if they died, obviously it would be much more loving for God to just kill them before they got to that point. So those who oppose once saved, always saved, really have no argument. Uh, they have an unloving God and they have a failure as a God. And as can be seen by many of the passages we covered, which concern the eternal security of the believer, a Christian never has to worry about coming into condemnation because their eternal security rests with God. If human beings were required to try and work to maintain their salvation, then grace is no more grace, Romans 11.6, Christ is dead in vain, Galatians 2.21, and the gospel is become of no effect, Galatians 5.4. The Bible is clear that once you are born again, you have entered into the eternal rest, which is in Christ Jesus. As Hebrews 4, 9-10 states, There remains therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Amen. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath. Once you are saved, you are always saved, and that is the best news you've heard all day. So, we have just seen powerful evidence from the Bible that proves once somebody accepts the gospel of Jesus Christ and becomes a Christian, they cannot lose their justification before God and therefore will not go to hell, no matter what they do in this life. We will now examine a few verses that people use in order to say that a Christian can lose their eternal life. One of the most common passages used by opponents of once saved, always saved is Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6, which states the following. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing as they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. First, it must be noted that if this passage is actually saying that a Christian can lose their salvation, then it puts opponents of once saved, always saved in a terribly awkward position. 
This is because opponents of eternal security usually believe that people can constantly gain and lose their justification before God throughout their life. They can be saved one week, lost the next week, get saved again the following week, etc. They essentially believe that someone can be born again hundreds of times in their life. However, if Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6 is stating that true born-again Christians can lose their salvation, then it is also clear that they can never get it back. Notice that this passage claims if someone falls away, then it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing as they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh, putting him to an open shame. I often like to bring up King David when discussing this subject, because if you talk about the sins that he committed, you know, murder, adultery, then most opponents of once saved, always saved, would admit that these sins are so serious that that would merit a Christian losing their salvation. But if we take Hebrews 6 into account and interpret it the way they want you to interpret it, which is that it's talking about a Christian losing salvation, then it must mean that a Christian can never get their salvation back once they lost it. So if that is the case, then that means, according to the philosophy oftentimes promoted by opponents of once saved, always saved, David lost his salvation, and I guess he, he never could have gotten it back if we take this verse to mean what they say it means. But of course this isn't true because David is one of the great heroes of the faith, um, and so they usually won't go that far, so this puts them in a pretty awkward position. However, their interpretation of Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6 is completely wrong because nowhere does this passage indicate that the people it is describing have been saved. This passage is describing those who have been exposed to sufficient evidence about God and have therefore been enlightened with the understanding of the gospel of Jesus. However, just understanding the gospel is not enough to be saved. To be saved, one has to fully accept Christ's payment for their sins. As James 2 verse 19 explains, You believe that there is one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. You know, even Satan believes God exists and he knows what Jesus did for humanity. But that does not get somebody saved because clearly you have to personally accept that free gift of salvation by faith alone to be saved. Salvation occurs when one makes the step from understanding what Jesus did to accepting what Jesus did. Believing in God is not enough to receive salvation because even the devils believe. If someone truly understands the gospel of Christ and experiences the elements listed in Hebrews 6 but still denies Jesus as Lord, then there is no more that can be done for them. They openly reject God's free gift of salvation and essentially spit in his face by saying no thanks to his offer. This is so disrespectful and egregious that the author of Hebrews equates it to crucifying Jesus a second time. This is known as the doctrine of reprobation, which acknowledges that once people reach a certain point of enlightenment concerning God's truth, yet still choose to reject him, then God may actually choose to harden their heart and blind their eyes to the point where no amount of evidence could change their mind and their eternal fate has been sealed. While of course Jesus' words are true, that all who come to him he will in no wise cast out, 
The issue is that some people have been supernaturally blinded by God to the point where they no longer have the mental capability to come to Christ. Just like the elect, which are Christians, can never lose their salvation, those who reach this state of reprobation can never gain salvation. This is a very sad and uncomfortable doctrine that most churches fail to talk about, but it is what the Bible says. In fact, I'll cover this topic on the next episode of this podcast because it is a very important topic to understand. Anyways, the person described in Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6 is one who has simply understood the gospel of Christ and got as close as they could to fully believing on Jesus, but then rejected God's gift instead of converting, and they ended up becoming reprobate. The next passage we will look at is John 15 verses 5 to 7 in which Jesus says the following, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. So the verse in question here is verse 6, which states that if a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Opponents of once saved, always saved read into this text by associating the fire in this verse with the fires of hell. Nowhere does this passage explicitly state that a Christian can lose their salvation if they do not abide in Christ. The correct understanding of this passage is that a Christian can lose their life and their rewards in heaven by not abiding in Jesus. If someone is born again but bears no fruit for God in their life, then they will be unfulfilled in this life and lack rewards in heaven. As we have already discussed, God scourges his children and will go as far as to kill the flesh of a believer if they continue to live a wicked and ungodly lifestyle and put God's name to shame. This is what Jesus is talking about when he mentions the Father taking away branches that fail to bear fruit. This verse does not talk about one losing their salvation, but rather their life and heavenly rewards. And I'm also aware of the somewhat popular interpretation of this passage um, to say that really what it means when it says that he will take away the branches that it means he's going to prune them back um, by snipping off the bad parts and try to help them grow even better because that's what you do in a vineyard. You know, once you have vines that are dead and no longer functioning, you cut those off and throw them away so that the plant can continue to grow and function better. But I personally do not find that interpretation convincing. Anyway, the next passage we will look at is Romans 11 verses 20 to 22, which state the following. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. See then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, for otherwise you too will be cut off. Now, the only way one could misinterpret this passage as referring to Christians losing their salvation is if they fail to actually take the context of the passage into account. 
While opponents of Once Saved, Always Saved will oftentimes just present the verses we just read, if you read the entire chapter of Romans 11, then it is obvious that Paul is talking here about God's dealing with the Jews as a whole and the Gentiles as a whole. This passage discusses the fact that even though God had a special covenant with the Jews, they rejected him and crucified Christ. Because the Jews rejected the Messiah, he made his glory known directly to the whole world, including Gentiles. This passage is warning Gentiles to refrain from becoming haughty and overly comfortable with the fact that God has now made his glory known directly to them as well. Romans 11 is talking about groups of people and not individual Christians. Instead of Gentiles having to go through Israel to experience the grace of God, they can freely experience God's glory by simply believing on Jesus. Romans 11 in no way concerns one's personal salvation, but is rather a warning to Gentiles as a whole to stay humble and realize the blessing they have been given through Christ. The next verse we will look at is Mark 13:13, 13, 13, in which Jesus states, And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. A parallel passage to Mark 13 is Matthew 24, in which verse 13 also states that he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. First, we must keep in mind that if a Christian could hypothetically lose their salvation, then God would kill them before they could even get to that point, as implied by Acts 5 verses 1 to 11, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5, and 1 John 5 verse 16. Second, if we read Mark 13 and Matthew 24 in context, then we see that Jesus said this statement during the Olivet Discourse, when he was discussing the signs of the end of this age and the tribulation right before his second coming. Jesus is saying that Christians who endure through this tribulation will be saved by Jesus' return after the tribulation. This is seen by verse 22 in Matthew 24, which states, Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. If the tribulation ran its whole course, then no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days should be shortened. So what Jesus is talking about here is that if you're a Christian and you endure to the end of the tribulation, you will be saved by his second coming uh, when Christians meet him in the clouds and receive their glorified bodies. And again, it is God himself who has the responsibility of keeping Christians and making sure that none of them will lose their salvation, as in the verses we've already covered in this podcast. So if somebody had to endure to the end of their life, whatever that may mean, God's got you. God won't let you fall because you have the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and the Father. All persons of the Trinity are described in the New Testament as maintaining a Christian salvation. Now we will look at a group of passages which indicate that those who commit certain sins will not enter into heaven. We have Ephesians 5, 5, which states that, For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Revelation 22.15 states that, Without the kingdom of heaven are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. And Galatians 5 verses 19 to 21, which state, 
Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So this group of passages explicitly states that those who commit sin shall not inherit the kingdom of God, which is completely correct. Let me explain what I mean by that, by citing the one passage that explains all of these shall not inherit the kingdom of God verses, which is 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 12, which state the following. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The last part of that passage is essential in understanding these passages that warn Christians about sinning. While sin is sin, and all sin is evil regardless of who commits it, Christians are no longer defined by their sin because as Paul says here, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. These verses are meant to show unbelievers why they need a Savior and to remind Christians that even though they have been saved by the blood of Christ, they should still strive to be as holy as possible for their sanctification. Verse 13 specifically states that all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. While Christians will not be damned to hell based on their sin, they can suffer eternal losses in heaven by the way they choose to sanctify themselves during this life, and they can also suffer grave consequences in this life, as already discussed. That's why Paul is saying here that technically all things are lawful unto Christians because technically a Christian could do anything and not lose their salvation, but not all things are expedient or good for you. Not all things are good for a Christian to do, such as murder, lie, commit adultery, etc., because this will ultimately lead to their own destruction. So, verse 13 of this passage is basically saying that even though Christians will not go to hell for sinning, they should not sin because sin is still wicked and it is not good for them. This passage, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-12, through 12, puts Ephesians 5-5, Revelation 22-15, and Galatians 5-19-21 into perspective. The purpose of these verses is to emphasize the seriousness of sin by explaining how people who are under the law, which are unbelievers, will be damned to hell for committing such acts, so Christians should have no part in them, because, as the New Testament tells us, the law of God is beautiful and perfect. 
Furthermore, imagine the gray area one's theology must have if they take these verses as meaning that a Christian can lose their salvation by committing any of these sins. If we apply this logic to Galatians 5 verses 19 to 21, for example, that means every time a Christian got mad without a sufficient cause, they would lose their salvation. Opponents of eternal security know that this is ridiculous and that if it were true, then they themselves would not be saved. So they will often claim something like this. Slipping into sin every once in a while is okay, but if you continue to willfully indulge in it, then you can lose your salvation. Of course, the Bible never explicitly states this, so these people are adding to the word of God. Furthermore, opponents of eternal security can never give you a specific point in which sinning every once in a while turns into continuous indulgent sin. For example, let's say a Christian gets really angry once a year. Most opponents of eternal security who believe Christians can lose their salvation would likely say that this person is still saved because he only slips into sin occasionally. However, what if this same Christian started to get angry once a month? Once a week? Once a day? You see, this results in an immense gray area in one's salvation. This is obviously absurd, and this heresy naturally leads to instability and insecurity in one's faith. If a Christian could lose their salvation by sinning, then not only does it diminish the blood of Christ, but there is also no way to actually know if you are saved, because Christians still continue to sin daily. As John writes in 1 John 1 verses 8 to 10, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John asserts here that it is impossible to be completely without sin because if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. One verse later, John also acknowledges that Christians do continue to sin because he writes, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So here again, John is acknowledging Christians will continue to sin because we are still in our fallen fleshly bodies, which that's what Romans 7 is all about, by the way. I'd recommend you read Romans 7 if you want a good take on that. But John is saying that all Christians will continue to sin, but we are forgiven because we have accepted the free gift of salvation by Jesus Christ, who is our advocate with the Father. And even though Christians will inevitably continue to sin, we should strive to not sin for our sanctification. The last passage we will look at that is sometimes used by opponents of eternal security is Hebrews 10 verse 26 which states, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Opponents of eternal security claim that this passage is telling believers that if they sin willfully after they have been saved, then they will lose their salvation. Again, if this passage were teaching that one could lose their salvation, then it also implies that one could never get it back because Christ's blood would not atone for the willful sins of believers, seeing as this verse states that there remains no more sacrifice for sins. If we take Hebrews 10.26 in its context, 
then it is clear that the sin being mentioned is specifically the sin of unbelief. We only need to read a few verses after verse 26 to understand this passage. Hebrews 10 verses 26 to 29 state that if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose you, shall he be thought worthy, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant, whereby he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. In his commentary on Hebrews, prominent New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner says that concerning chapter 10 verse 26, sinning deliberately does not refer to any and every sin committed. The author has in mind apostasy, the rejection of the Christian faith. One can't receive forgiveness through the once-for-all offering of Jesus if one defiantly rejects him. Verse 26 tells us that if someone has received the knowledge of the truth and understands the gospel, yet continues to willfully sin by rejecting Christ's sacrifice, there remains no more sacrifice for them. This is because the blood of Jesus is the only sacrifice that can truly take away sin. So if someone understands what Christ has done for them but willfully does not accept it, then there remains no more sacrifice for sins. And that completes our episode on if a Christian can lose their salvation, which we have just seen the Bible explicitly states, no, a Christian cannot lose their salvation because once you are justified before God, you will always be justified before God because you acquired it by faith alone. You cannot lose it. Now, the sanctification of believers is different for everybody and involves work. But no matter how poor one's sanctification is, they will never lose their justification once they have become born again. And I know some of the verses we looked at today tie in with the doctrine of reprobation, which uh, might be confusing for many people to hear, but we are going to discuss that on the next episode. So thank you all so much for listening. Remember, once you are saved, you can never lose your salvation. You are in the palm of Jesus Christ and the Father The Holy Spirit has sealed you into the day of redemption, and Jesus said he will not lose anyone that the Father has given him. Thank you all for listening. Have a great day. Bye.